This podcast covers mature, intense, morbid, and sometimes just scary stuff. Listener discretion is advised. Tragedy struck Boston's North End neighborhood in 1919 when dozens died and hundreds were injured in a freak accident. Today, we're slip sliding into Boston's Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Welcome to 30 Morbid Minutes. This is the podcast where we explore topics of a morbid, macabre, dark, and downright grisly nature. I'm Elise Willems. I'm Jessica Vasami. Jess, when you think of Boston, what do you usually think about? I honestly think of Irish pubs. Me too. I think of like the departed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Matt Damon, Ben Affleck. Yeah. The accents, the like heavy Boston accent. Mm-hmm. Think mm-hmm. about the marathon. I think about the bean. The bean? I think that's in Chicago. Oh, is it Chicago? For some reason, I thought Boston had a bean too. Like they both were just like, we're both going to have beans. Oh, if they do, I only know the Chicago bean. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> no, oh no, I need gosh. to look it up. Hold on. Look, if it's not in The Departed, I don't actually know it. Boston bean. Hold on. Boss, first thing that pops up is be- coffee beans. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> we don't know Boston as well as I guess I thought I did. I think I was there for like 24 hours once. I like Boston. You should. I actually like it. I would never dare tell my dad this, but I think I enjoy the city of Boston more than I do New York. Damn. Yeah. You, you should go sometime. It's definitely worth it for sure. I did spend some time there. But which is why I think I thought I thought I saw a bean. I think you were in Chicago. I was probably in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> I have photos of me with this big metallic bean, but I think I just thought that the cities were like, we can both do it. It'll it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like how in yeah. Canada we had two football teams called the Rough Riders. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. Matter. The Rough Riders. Um, well, you probably don't think about molasses when you think of Boston usually, right? I don't know. Well, I think you're going to after this episode. Great. (laughs) (laughs) It all started January 15th, 1919, an ordinary Wednesday. Mild weather for that time in Boston, about 40 degrees. I think when I was there visiting the Bean, that's about how warm it was. (laughs) Um, And the snow had already melted. That afternoon, nine-year-old Anthony D'Estacio and his four sisters gathered their belongings and prepared to walk home for lunch from Michelangelo School of Boston's North End. As they walked, they could smell the syrup from the molasses factory behind their home. A 50-foot-tall cylindrical tank stood over the harbor like a giant. Inside it, it held millions of gallons of molasses. The Distasios lived on 115 Charter Street. In order to walk home, the Distasio kids walked north on Charter Street past Cops Hill. That day, it was just before 12.30 p.m. when it happened. The narrow side streets were alive with groups of men arguing over chess games. You know, those groups of like old Italian guys get together and they say, we oh, we'll play chess together. You know what I'm oh, talking about. Oh, I know. About. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so there's there's some activity happening on the streets. People are out doing their errands. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The kids walked by past a small outdoor area nearby where the molasses factory laborers were snacking on sandwiches and coffee. Suddenly, a loud but muffled roar took over the chatter of the North End community. The molasses tank seemed to rise over the roofs of the houses, swelling with energy. And then the siding of the tank did the unthinkable. It split, every rivet popping off. There was a huge pop, 
followed by smaller pops that sounded like machine gun fire. Then a gooey hell broke loose, a towering, choking brown wave. There was a rush of sweet smelling air. Almost instantly, people were swept up and hurled across the street by the syrupy explosion. The huge wave of molasses caught and killed most of the laborers who had been snacking on sandwiches and playing chess just moments earlier. And this is something where it sounds silly. It sounds like something out of a movie, but no, this actually happened. I know this reminds me of that 1988 movie, The Blob. Have you seen that? Oh, I haven't. I know the movie, but I've never seen it actually. I think you and especially James would really enjoy it. Um, yeah, it's just like this bring, it, it is a blob. Whatever you would think is a blob and it's just attacking everything. It's like mowing over people. They're kind of drowning in it. And I have to wonder if this is sort of the real life inspiration for that kind of sci-fi. You know, I should I should look that up after this. You're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. But yes, so a piece of the tank sighting flew across Commercial Street, slicing a supporting beam of the elevated trolley. The train screeched to a halt just in time as the broken track slowly sagged into the rushing molasses. It was slow chaos, if that is such a thing. One reporter wrote, the houses seemed to cringe up as if made of pasteboard when the brown wave made impact. A woman named Bridget Cloudery was killed instantly when the wave demolished her home in one fail swoop. And that happened other times. There was so much more devastation. The fireboat company was splintered. A delivery truck was thrown through a wooden fence. A wagon driver was found dead, frozen, mid-expression. Anthony D'Astasio was picked up by the crest of the dark wave, almost as if he was surfing. It seems like something from a science fiction movie. Yeah. This couldn't be happening. You really got me thinking about this now, about the Blob movie. I'm like, was this the inspiration? Maybe. I mean, you made a really astute comparison with that because now (laughs) I'm all I'm thinking is like, oh, if I had lived through this or heard about this incident, the Blob would definitely Mm -hmm. come from that. Mm Mm-hmm. But little Anthony, he heard his mother screaming for him, but he couldn't answer because his throat had filled with goo and he couldn't breathe, like if you were underwater and your passages started to fill with water. And then he quickly passed out. When the wave smashed into the ground, tiny Anthony just rolled around like a pebble in the thick molasses. A police officer just so happened to be making a call to his precinct while at the corner signal box, he saw the molasses making its way toward him and he called for immediate help. Because of this, ambulances got there quickly, but rescue vehicles could not get in because sticky molasses literally clogged the streets. The goose sucked at the boots and the clothes of the Red Cross workers who were trying to get through on foot. And I feel like like, emergency workers, they prepare for different things, like maybe a chemical spill. Oh, yeah, not this. You know, or a flood, but nobody's preparing for molasses. No. Right? (laughs) No. Um, A Boston Post reporter wrote of the spill, molasses waist deep covered the street and swirled and bubbled around the wreckage. Here and there struggled a form, whether it was an animal or human being was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a thrashing about in the sticky mass showed where any life was. To continue some quotes, horses died like so many flies on sticky fly paper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. The death toll was high and it kept growing, too. Anthony D'Astasio, that little boy, he was found under a sheet on the side of a room littered with bodies beneath a sign that read dead. But 
Uh, when Anthony opened his eyes, he saw three of his sisters staring down at him. So even though he was below that sign that said dead, it was clearly a misunderstanding. He was okay. He was a, one of the lucky ones. Yes. It was extremely difficult to identify people because they were covered in black syrup. The Boston Post ran a list of the known dead, the injured, and the unidentified. Yeah. Anthony ultimately just had a compound fracture of the skull, so he was one of the seriously injured But sadly, one of his sisters, Maria, was killed and she was only 10. The final death count was 21 with 150 injured. And the damage, though, was extensive. Once the molasses settled, it stretched across several blocks of downtown Boston and was about two to three feet deep. Gosh. And, you know, Jess, it's it's strange because this all sounds like something from a dream or a movie. And I asked my mom, like, if she was familiar with this story, this is history and she wasn't. No, yeah, I was actually just like looking at it on Wikipedia um right before we started recording just to like under cuz you know how like underneath on Wikipedia they have like cultural references or like where you've seen it today. And it's been like, you know, Drunk History did a story about it and it's been, you know, mentioned here and there, but it's not like a super a super popular story. No. You know, I mean, it was in 1919, but... I feel like if you didn't know it was actually a real thing, you might think it's like the Australian emu wars or something, mm-hmm. like a made-up false yeah. history, just to... Because it sounds so silly, in a or, sense. Yeah, or a movie plot. But it yeah. was a, a real tragedy. And so many factors collided to make it such, one being the time of year that this mm. happened at. And it begs the question of... How fast does molasses spread and move in January? Well, on the day of the Great Molasses Flood, the wave moved at a shocking 35 miles per hour. That's insane yeah. for molasses to molasses. move that fast. Um, yeah. Like if you s- spill a glass of molasses on your kitchen table, you know, for good luck cleaning that up. It's sticky, thick. The smell lingers. It's guaranteed to be really annoying. Yeah, it's 40% thicker than water with a density of about 1.4 metric tons per cubic meter, which means that molasses carries a lot of energy behind it when it does get moving. Yes, when the when the tank collapsed, it translated into such an intense energy that it caused the molasses to build into a 25-foot high wave. With some debate, a few news outlets reported that the wave uh, as being as high as 50 feet. What? And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which all puts me in the place. Because, like, I never thought molasses could get to, like, such a high weight. Like, I mean, this all seems so strange to talk about, right? No, and, it is. Because, like, I feel like I know molasses, but I don't know molasses, you know? Exactly. And, like, you know that saying of, like, oh, you're slow as molasses mm-hmm. or whatever. And you're talking about 35 35- you know, miles an hour yeah, here. Apparently, waves. Yeah, pretty fucking fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but I think we need to rewind for a second. Just what is molasses? If I'm an alien to this planet and you have to explain to me what it is, what is it? Speaking of aliens. Uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> we are, we'll talk about that later. We haven't but, even got to talk about that. Jess and I are coming off that congressional uh, hearing about yeah. uh, unidentified uh, UAPs now. Yeah, know yeah. Them, so. But we're talking um, about molasses today. We are. Let's we'll talk about molasses. Yeah. Um, you know, there are bigger things to talk about. We will. Yeah. We should. We need to cover aliens. But we anyway, need to cover aliens. Um, yeah, molasses. It's a. It's a dark, dark 
brown. Uh, it's sticky. It's usually a, a sugar substitute. You can find molasses in like a lot of delicious things that we eat, like gingerbread cookies, barbecue sauce, baked beans. I don't Potatoes know if you like any of those. And molasses. <laughs> uh, it's distilled from sugar canes, sugar beets, or pomegranates. And since we're in the American market, sugar cane molasses is the most effective way to produce it. It's probably what we are getting molasses derived from. Mm-hmm. And the sweet viscosity of the molasses gives a robust and uniquely bitter flavor, though, though there are a few steps that it must undergo before reaching its final form. I see here, Jessica, you've added in parentheses the blob reference. <laughs> <laughs> because I did. I, yes, but we already talked about it earlier because I love that it's like reaching its final form because it reminds like me blob? again of the blob. Because Wait, so the blob has to like undergo a certain processes or growth to get to that? What's well, kind of begs the question of, is there a final form in general? Like, what does that look like? You know, if in the movie, The Blob, <laughs> everyone just watch it. <laughs> it's one of those like B-80s movies, but it's good. <laughs> I gotta watch it now. Maybe we should do a watch party for it. Um, yes. With, with our with our sicko listeners. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um well, in order to produce molasses, the sugar cane and its leaves are stripped down and either cut, crushed, or mashed up. And then that mash is boiled in water, and the result is a sugary sweet juice. The heat encourages the sugars and the mash to crystallize. And the first round of juice is called first syrup, or A-molasses. This syrup has the highest sugar content, and it's not as thick as dark molasses. You may know it as cane syrup. Mm-hmm. Then this syrup is boiled down again to make B-molasses, B-molasses, not to be confused with a B-movie like The Blob, has a more bitter taste and resembles a thick brown substance. But if you distill B-molasses a third time, oh, you don't even want to know. <laughs> what next? No. What is next? But I'm going to tell you, you get C-molasses. Oh, also shit. Also known as blackstrap molasses. Oh, shit. Okay. Right. Okay, blackstrap. Yeah. <laughs> Man, this is intense. Yeah, blackstrap molasses is the thickest of them all and gets its unique taste because the majority of the sucrose from the original juices are crystallized and burnt off. God damn. <laughs> it used to be touted as healthy for you because it had vitamin B6, magnesium, potassium, iron, calcium. One tablespoon of blackstrap molasses provides 20% of a person's daily nutritional intake. Yeah, but it doesn't taste great. Uh, the bitterness mm-hmm. of the blackstrap molasses is the strongest of them all. In fact, blackstrap molasses can be so bitter that it can be used in fertilizers to uh, produce ethanol. Yes. In order to turn molasses into ethanol, you have to go through a very specific process. You got to dilute the molasses with water. Then you add sulfuric acid for acidification. Then you add some yeast to the molasses solution and put it in a tightly closed container. The temperature has to be maintained at 308 degrees Kelvin, which is approximately 94.73 degrees Fahrenheit. Give it a week, then fermentation begins. So 6 to 10% alcohol is present in this fermented matter. It's what we call wort. Basically, the fermentation makes a biogas. And I know it sounds like, why are you guys telling me? This all explains the explosion, right, Jess? Oh, for sure. This fermentation of yeast is connected with the 1919 tank explosion. The tank lacked manganese. Manganese is a coenzyme that helps break down carbohydrates, proteins, and cholesterols. Because the tank hadn't been coated in manganese, the steel was extremely brittle. 
Yes. And back then there were a lot of large chemical plants that dedicated their production of molasses uh, to ethanol. Molasses plants would distill these large, and we mean large, barrels of blackstrap molasses in order to produce the ethanol. And these barrels could hold millions of gallons of molasses. That is why in 1915, the Purity Distilling Company, a chemical firm, which was a a subsidiary of the United States Industrial Alcohol Company, built huge molasses tanks in Boston. And we're going to talk a little bit about how Purity Distilling and their process for making molasses came to a head in this terrible disaster in Boston's history after a word from our sponsors. Thirty Morbid Minutes is sponsored by BetterHelp. Jessica, I think you and I are people who internalize a lot. Yep. And sometimes we just need to get that out. I know for me, it can be a lot of like work-related stuff or when I think about the future and you get that kind of anxiety. And for me, it has helped in the past to talk to someone, especially a trained professional who can take all of my, you know, wild thoughts and help me make sense of them. A hundred thousand percent. I had a, a situation come up the other day where uh, I wanted to work out in the morning, got up at 8 a.m., wanted to work out, but instead sat and stared at a wall for about 30 minutes, just sitting in my anxiety. And oh, thankfully, no. I had therapy at nine and I was like, this is great. This is the perfect time to have therapy because I just sat for 30 minutes filled with anxiety and I was able to go to therapy and just literally dump it onto someone else that isn't a friend or a family member, a third-party professional that was able to just like help me uh, figure out my thoughts and perspective and a way forward. That's the way to do it. If like Jess and me, you are looking for that avenue in your life, try BetterHelp. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible. It suits your schedule and the way that you want to talk to someone. Oh yeah. And you can just fill out like a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Services like this are really needed, especially if you have a hard time getting access to therapy and treatment. So we're proponents of it here. Yep, 100%. Yeah, and you can get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Yes, so visit betterhelp.com slash 30mm today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash 30mm. We get pretty dark on this podcast. We get pretty morbid. I want to talk about something life-affirming, something that is providing us with sustenance. Jess and, and I. And that is HelloFresh. Okay. HelloFresh takes the stress out of mealtime by delivering fresh ingredients and easy recipes right to your door. So this fall, skip that extra trip to the grocery store. We're already so busy. The weather is getting colder. We just want to be home. Have dinner ready in no time with America's number one meal kit. And because it's a new season, that means new meals. So HelloFresh has a fresh fall lineup of delicious dinners and more to choose from. This means that you can take your pick from 40 weekly recipes and you can choose what suits your lifestyle. So maybe you want veggie-based meals. Maybe you want family-friendly ones. Maybe you're looking to get in shape this fall season so you want to dabble in the fit and wholesome dinners. HelloFresh has it for you. You're getting top-notch produce since it travels from the farm to your door in less than seven days. Jess and I are huge fans of HelloFresh. 
I'm not a big chef. I'm not, I don't cook. I don't really love to cook, but I like having good food. So I love that somebody takes the mental energy, the emotional labor out of cooking for me. That's what HelloFresh is to me. It takes the stress out of mealtime because I get all the ingredients that I need and exactly the quantity that I need. It tells me exactly how to use them. And it's for recipes that I would never think to make on my own, like Cajun blackened chicken and rice bowls. Sounds great. I would never think to make that. So HelloFresh is helping me broaden my taste bud horizons. And right now you can go to hellofresh.com slash 5030mm and use code 5030mm for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Wild. That is go to hellofresh.com slash 5030mm, 5030mm and use code 5030MM for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Thank you. Hello, Fresh. Back to the show, Jess, you mentioned Purity Distilling Company was building these huge molasses tanks in Boston. And the USIA, the United States Industrial Alcohol Company, had only bought the PDC a few years prior to the 1919 explosion in 1915. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the tank that exploded in 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 January 15th, 1919 was 50 feet tall, 90 feet in diameter, and was 283 feet around, and it held 2.3 million gallons of molasses. And people were jonesing for molasses back then, okay? They couldn't make it fast enough, and it was being produced in these large quantities. So Purity Distilling needed these enormous facilities to house these massive molasses fermentations. Yeah, and also harbor and dock areas made for like great distilling locations because that meant that the shipments could be easily accessible by ships. Now, keep in mind, one ton of this fermented molasses yields about 235 liters of ethanol, which in comparison is like not a ton. And molasses also, it's in so much. It's very ubiquitous. We don't really think of all the stuff that it's actually in. It's in like pastries, beer, rum, bread, gas, even firearms. Yeah. So if it's everywhere and we use it in everything, and back then a ton was being produced, what triggered the explosion to happen? Yeah. Why in this situation when it's it seems like it's pretty innocuous elsewhere, did it cause this disaster? Um, Well, we mentioned one potential cause, and that was the brittle siding of the tank being eaten away by the yeast and carbohydrates that were acidifying. Mm -hmm. And at the time, some believed that there had been an explosion inside the tank caused by the festering fermentation. Yeah, like kind of the equivalent of spontaneous combustion, which from this podcast, you might know, is not a real thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, not not from well, people. Humans, yeah. <laughs> not from humans, but yes, it can happen in a chemical reaction. Yeah. Um, others thought that a bomb maybe had been placed inside the tanks. Bolshevism, Jess, who's on an Oppenheimer kick, she's going to be really into this. <laughs> but, you know, communism, Bolshevism in the U.S. was on the rise. So the assumption wasn't too far off that maybe this was a terrorist or a political, politically charged attack. Bombs had already been planted in other industrial plants around the country. There was also speculation of just a a structural failure. The Purity Distilling Company had hoped that this was not the case because that would make their parent company, you know, the United States Industrial 
alcohol liable for the disaster. The Boston Post put out a subheadline on January 16th, 1919, the day after, that read, internal explosion was the cause, says state chemist. It went on to explain how the tank was hooked up to a boiler with tubes that connected to a shipment tank on a boat. So they're like putting out all kinds of Oh, yeah. Information, whether it's right or wrong about this. Yeah, yeah. I love that we have a state chemist. Just, I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it. Um, But yeah, the molasses has to be warmer in order to move more quickly from tank to tank. It has to have a lower viscosity. So essentially, the state chemist deduced that the mixture of hot air and alcohol created something like a bomb. Now, we have to hang on a second and rewind because the state chemist, who name we don't know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) They are the state chemist, (laughs) I guess, bought the Boston state chemist, Um, was not wrong, but he wasn't right either. Yeah, listen to this. Okay, so the tank was actually found to have been leaking since the first date was filled in 1915. So we mentioned the need for ethanol was high during World War I. When molasses is fermented into ethanol, it is used as the key ingredient in alcohols and firearm munitions. And industrial alcohol that was produced from molasses is used in smokeless gunpowder and in ammunition and artillery shells. The tank was also found to have been shoddily constructed and the inspections were poorly done. The production of the tanks was, you know, a little rushed to say the least. Yeah, when they're in the middle of a war effort, there's going to be a lot of production that's rushed, right? Mm-hmm. And World War One was not the only pressure that was being put on the USIA to produce more and more molasses ethanol. It was also a key ingredient in rum. And at the time, prohibition was like in full swing. Yes. So the day after the explosion, as rescue workers were knee deep in sticky molasses, the church bells rang. The church was celebrating that Nebraska had just passed its dry state law, the last state to do so, forcing the 18th Amendment into ratification. So this meant that alcohol would be illegal throughout the entire United States within the year. Yeah, so they have one Mm. year to Mm -hmm. produce as much alcohol as they can. Mm -hmm. And they need this molasses ethanol to make rum, and they got to make it fast. They want to make a lot. By January 17th, 1920, the entire country would be alcohol-free. And here they were, the rescue workers, standing in millions of gallons of molasses, the key ingredient needed to make this rum so they can chug it (laughs) over the next 12 months. For sure, for sure. One could assume that the Purity Distilling Company may have been pushing production to its limits, trying to outrun prohibition. So, you know, honestly, this tragedy was a perfect storm. Mm -hmm. And then the weather, the temperature in Boston rose from 2 degrees Fahrenheit to 41 degrees over 24 hours. The warmer weather that day would have created a buildup of carbon dioxide, which would have raised the internal pressure due to the fermentation in the tank. A shipment had come in from another location and the already warming tank was filled with heated gooey molasses. So since molasses has to be held at approximately 94 degrees Fahrenheit to create ethanol, this means this molasses had to be hot to move easily. The damage was thought to have started near a manhole at the top of the tank, so how they, a human would have entered the tank if they needed mm-hmm. to. There was already a crack there that had developed from the strain placed on the tank over time. When the sides of the tank burst, the warm molasses gushed into the street at a rapid speed, just wiping out people, cars, animals, homes, everything in its way. So in this 40-degree air, the molasses then cooled as quickly as it came out of the tank, 
and people were you know, choking on this increasingly sticky and thickening molasses that's doing so in real time. That's what's so unfortunate. And that's what made the rescue effort so difficult. There was just so much molasses that it only got stickier and stickier the more it was exposed to the chilling elements. Yeah. It's like, I think about, you know, <laughs> this is a silly comparison, but like in Terminator, mm-hmm. when like the Terminators, like the, um, the liquid nitrate that yeah. is, is spilled and they're like freezing up as they move. It's like, yes, yes. The courts ended up finding that the explosion was caused because the quote factor of safety was too low. This was a common thing. Early 20th century lacks workplace and production regulations. Inspections aren't strict. We don't have codes. We don't have standards. Oh, yeah. An investigation into the disaster showed that Arthur Gell, who is USIA's treasurer, did not do basic safety tests, like the like first fill the tank with water to see if there were leaks. <laughs> yeah. Like, like that seems pretty uh, basic. And I think also prob- maybe you're thinking of the submersible because it's like there's this big giant tank. Oh, and for sure. The submersible needs to be this like airtight yeah. you know, um, entity. Like Can't be having leaks. Yeah. Arthur Gell, that treasurer, he even ignored simple warning signs, like hearing groaning noises from the tank every time it was spilled. Yeah, like, that come on. should be a red flag. For sure. But, you know, money, 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 prohibition. We got to be all these things, mm-hmm. all these things. In fact, you know, the tank leaked so badly that the purity distilling company painted the outside of the tank brown in order to hide the oozing goo. And it gets worse from there because not only did Gell ignore all these obvious signs we mentioned, but he did not have engineering or architecture experience. This is so common. I know. the Yeah, the guy we were relying on to make this thing that's very dependent on structural integrity does not have that experience. Yeah. An investigation in the tank explosion revealed that the steel was only half as thick as it should have been as well, even with the lower standards at the time. Again, feels like the submersible. I know, I know. Yeah. Um, plus the tank, I never thought we'd be comparing these two, but here we are. Um, plus the tanks rivets were faulty. They'd split the steel during construction as soon as they were driven into place. So like that too, you know, Mm -hmm. like the steel splitting as the thing that's supposed to hold it together is being driven in and you're going to go forward with using this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you know, obviously the purity distilling company and the USIA were definitely found to blame for the horrific event. and they. Fucked around in Boston and they found out. Oh, for oh, for <laughs> Which, sure. You know, like I may have been at the wrong bean, but let me tell you, those 24 <laughs> hours I spent in Boston, I actually I will say, um, I feel like Bostonians kind of get a bad rap because everyone in Boston was so nice and helpful to me. Good. Yeah. That's good. But in this situation, rightfully, the North End community took their Yankee asses to court, okay? Which I can't confirm that everyone's ass was Yankee. I don't think they were, but I feel like that's something <laughs> someone from Boston would say, like, what's taking your Yankee asses to court? Oh, oh that's yeah. more New Yorker. I don't know, but... It sounded good. <laughs> more than 100 claims were brought against the company Purity Distilling, and uh, they actually settled out of court, and USIA paid off all, you know, just over half a million dollars, 620000 in damages. I feel like it was, it should have been more, but Mm -hmm. yeah. And then, you know, Anthony D'Estacio's mother got an extra 7,000 for the death of her daughter, Maria. And in fact, all of the families of those who were killed got $7,000 per victim. But I mean, how can you really like put a price on 
that it's like, of course. All right. You know, but yeah, this litigation didn't come easy. It took six years and involved over 3,000 witnesses. God. Yeah. Reportedly, so many lawyers were in the courthouse. There was not room for all of them. And if you find the idea of a 50 foot dark syrupy wave wiping out an entire neighborhood in January unfathomable, well, let me tell you, a team of scientists at Harvard University found otherwise. Yes. They wanted to try to, to, you know, say like, how did this happen? They say they conducted research using old weather patterns, old newspapers, maps, and weather reports. They also studied the properties of corn syrup and flooded a two-scale model of the North End to see how that corn syrup was going to behave. This research essentially determined that the reports of witnesses were credible regarding the velocity and size of the molasses wave. But, you know, you still have to live in the aftermath of this. And the cleanup took a long time. Hundreds of people contributed to that effort. They used salt water, brought in on fireboats to wash away the molasses. Then they put sand on it to absorb the goop. Yeah, and it took weeks to clean the immediate area. Like, the surrounding Boston neighborhoods were sticky for months. That, I would say, is like, you know, the the phrase living in interesting times. Mm-hmm. Having to live in Boston in that time must have been so weird and surreal. Super. Rescuers and onlookers tracked molasses all across the city. It was stuck on public telephones, door handles, refrigerators, train cars, like anything and everything. NBC reporter Ben Kesslin wrote, everything a Bostonian touched had molasses. It's like a toddler that like gets into chocolate or like yeah. something <laughs> sticky around the house. And it's like, oh, they, they've been in the kitchen. They've been in the bathroom because everything's covered in yep. whatever yep. that little kids' hands are in. It's like that scene in Daddy Daycare when Eddie yes. Murphy goes into the bathroom because there's poop everywhere yes. and he looks in horror at the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> Except so. with molasses, yeah. yeah. But the smell, the smell of the syrup lingered in the air for literal decades. Reporter Edwards Park wrote in a 2023 article for the Smithsonian that he has a deep memory of the sweet aroming recalling the smell of molasses remained for decades a distinctive and unmistakable atmosphere of Boston. <laughs> so strange. It is. The Purity Distilling Company never rebuilt the molasses tank, and that area eventually became part of the Boston Elevated Railway. And it's now called Lagone Park, and it has a little baseball field and bocce courts. That's cute. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this bizarre, sticky disaster could have sadly been avoided, uh, like most work-related tragedies of the 20th century. Yeah. And like a lot of these things that came out of early industrialization, reactionary laws and regulations happened. Going forward, employees overseeing the factory were required to be licensed engineers and architects. Who'd have thought? Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, <laughs> too much sense, <laughs> some might say. A little too much sense, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there's a nice small plaque commemorating the disaster uh, that was erected at the site. The plaque says, On January 15th, 1919, a molasses tank at 529 Commercial Street exploded under pressure, killing 21 people. A 40-foot wave of molasses buckled the elevated railroad tracks, crushed buildings, and inundated the neighborhood. Structural defects in the tank combined with unseasonably warm temperatures contributed to the disaster. In 2019, the city of Boston held an event in remembrance of the flood. It would have been 100 years after it. And the city placed this ground-penetrating radar, which then identified where the exact location of the tank would have been. And a bunch of people stood in a circle, 
you know, around the edge of the tank or what would have been the edge. And then they read the names of the 21 victims aloud. That's really nice. Mm -hmm. There is an original concrete slab, which once uh, lay 20 inches beneath the behemoth structure. The original floor of the tank is still in place underneath the baseball diamond at the Lagoon Park. We're always walking on history without even knowing it. I know. But this is uh, an interesting thing. And I, I feel like if you live in Boston, you probably know about this, but I'd be curious to hear from listeners from all over the U.S. and the world to know if this is a historical event that you're familiar with or if this is news to you. Yeah, this was definitely news to me. And I got to say, I really do love that, you know, in, in 2019, there there was a group of people that stood around, you know, naming the the 21 victims out loud. I mean, this did, yeah, happen a hundred years ago. It's not like, I don't know if people do that with like the Titanic, people in New York, like they could have been here. We read all the names of those, the victims of the Titanic. Like, I don't know. Uh, that's really nice that they do that. But uh, there's a part of me, I'm like, you still care? That's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. And I also think like to really recognize that this was a disaster that came from corporate greed to an extent. And being aware of that because like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we're seeing with so many of these, these state like the submersible too. It's we're, we're seeing um, like a disregard for regulation and it comes mm-hmm. from a place of, of greed. capitalism yeah. too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Power. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, this was a, this was a good episode. Yeah. I enjoyed yeah. it. Me too. Um, I mean, it's obviously dark and this, you know, we wish this didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. What's the one thing you took away from this episode? Uh, I think for me, it's that as prepared as even professional responders can be for emergencies, there can be situations like this where you would never have thought a mol- you're going to be dealing with a molasses flood and you may have trained and prepared for like, oh, we'd know how to react if there's water flooding, how to rescue people or secure a perimeter or deal with that. But you, there's those situations, the rare anomalies where you're like, we weren't trained for this. We don't know how to handle this. Wow, I thought you were going to say that you need to go watch The Blob. <laughs> I got this really serious answer. I'm like, God, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, I forgot. I need to watch The Blob. You forgot. That's what I, that's what I meant. That's what I meant to say. Um, actually, it's weird because I've never been like too interested in watching The Blob because I feel like I know the log line, which is giant blob <laughs> overtakes city. But you've gotten in this in the span of 35 minutes, you've gotten me. Uh, unreasonably interested in watching the blob. No, I think I think James would really like it too. I think that if you watched the two of you watching it together, I think you'd love it. When was the last time you watched it? Years ago, I was a child, but I it stuck with me. It is a core memory. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Anyway. But no, I agree with you. For your serious answer, you're right. Sometimes I God bless our first responders because sometimes boy, do they come to situations being like, "What the fuck is this?" Yeah. No amount. How do of I training. deal with this? No, uh, no matter how many times you could run through like a scenario, like you can't prepare for that, right? No, no. Uh, just like sometimes in this podcast, I can we go into an episode and I could never be prepared that the blob is going to become. <laughs> you did point. not know what was going to hit you today, Elise. <laughs> I, didn't. I didn't, but I'm so glad it did. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. And if you want more of our wonderful, vibrant personalities, follow us on social media. See what else Jess is watching. She'll, I'm sure she'll post about it on threads and Instagram and wherever else she's she's on. Yeah, I, I don't too. even keep up with threads. It's too much. I, I forget about it. Too much. Yeah. Too much. But yeah, follow us. I mean, we have some awesome merch at the uh, Rooster Teeth store. 
Go check them out. But until next time, you know, bad bye, Elise. Until next time, bad blob, Jessica. Oh, God. God. Go watch it, everybody. Bye.